0: After nearly two decades in effect, the renewable fuel standard is approaching a crossroads. But what will past and present controversies mean for the future of ethanol? That's today on Field Posts. a DTN Progressive Farmer podcast that dives deeper into the most important trends in agriculture to explore the business's cutting edge. I'm your host, Sarah Mock. For nearly two decades, the renewable fuel standard has helped make ethanol and biofuels industries major destinations for U.S. crops. But for corn markets in the last few years in particular, uncertainty has run rampant, as high demand gave way to excess supplies made worse by unreliable biofuels policy. And at the end of 2022, a big reset is looming. Today, DTN staff reporter Todd Neely and Progressive Farmer Crops editor Matt Wildy join us to discuss where these uncertainties stand, from small refinery waivers and pandemic-stalled fuel demand to the more recent Supreme Court ruling on E15. We'll also dig into the future of the RFS as rule changes approach, what impact electric cars might have on the industry, and what producers should be keeping an eye on in the meantime, right after this word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by MyDTN. In today's environment, it's essential, more than ever, to get the most current and accurate information to help save your valuable resources and continue to be profitable, Get access to all the information you need to deal with this change from DTN. As the leading independent, trusted source of actionable insights and market information, my DTN gives you accurate weather forecasts, the most extensive database of grain bids, and the most timely news and analysis from our award-winning news team. These features and more are available 24/7 via desktop, laptop, and any mobile device to be with you on the go. Learn more at MyDTN.com and start a free 14-day trial. Now, back to the show. DTN staff reporter Todd Neely and progressive farmer crops editor Matt Wildy have been deep in the weeds on ethanol, reporting the cover story for the August issue of The Progressive Farmer. Todd and Matt, ethanol has been such a top story for the ag industry for the last several years, if not basically since the RFS was signed. But I'm curious about the timing of this piece. What has, in terms of following news and things that are happening in the near term, why is this moment the right time to be taking a really hard look at what's happening in the ethanol space?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think Matt can talk a lot about this too. He talked to a lot of ethanol producers, farmers, and other people on the ground. I deal a lot in the policy in DC and, and all the things that, that go into that. But I would say, from my perspective, I think we we decided to look into this and delve into ethanol deeper at this point in time, because there's so much discussion in the Biden administration about moving to electric vehicles. And that's fine, although you look down the road, and I, I still think the technology is, is in its infancy in, in terms of EVs. And I think A lot of people in the ethanol industry were a little uptight, to say the least, when the Biden administration came in and began uh, immediately talking about the future prevalence of of electric vehicles. And I think along the way, ethanol, as we've seen so long, dating back to the 2005 RFS, ethanol has been having to tell a story and retell its story about its carbon benefits and that sort of thing. And I think from my perspective, this story that we went into, I think it is really talking about where ethanol stands. We're seeing build out in the industry and different technologies, carbon capture, expansion of corn, corn storage, there's all kinds of things going on in corn and ethanol right now. And I think what we wanted to dive into is what is the future of of ethanol. And I think Matt can tell you more too, but I I think ethanol needs to have a place at the table when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions discussions. And I think hopefully the story that we did is maybe a precursor or at least getting the discussion started on that front.
2: Ethanol has battled for decades for its place within the, the the fuel sector. The oil industry and ethanol, while they you know, with the RFS, they somewhat have to get along. But however, there are still those battles that are continually going on between the long, uh, the the stalwarts within the the oil industry and the renewable fuel sector. Because like in any business, who wants to give up market share? No, No one within their business. And that's certainly this case with the oil industry. So they have been, that has been a battle for years. But when we looked at this doing this story we really looked at too with the uh, with the covid-19 with the pandemic it was and how that had changed the fuel usage because when everybody was staying at home and fuel usage just dropped uh dropped like a rock uh, that also played a role and there's a lot of other issues as well that the uncertainty of the ethanol industry with the fuel usage came came back into the, really came back in the forefront again. So you have not only... The pandemic, but you had rising, rapidly rising corn prices as the pandemic started to uh, wane uh, a little bit. You had the EPA waivers from the, during the Trump administration, dozens of small refinery waivers were issued that reduced ethanol demand by millions of gallons. So that was some uncertainty. As Todd talked about the electric vehicles, some uncertainty there. The RFS blending requirements are set to sunset in 2022. And then the EPA will have to establish a now undetermined blending levels for 2023, unless the Congress acts as, as well. So lots of uncertainty kind of snowballing here within the last year and a half.
0: So many different directions I want to take out of that question, but I think I want to start with the Biden administration. And their role in altering some perceptions, I think coming out of the Trump administration, the big concerns for ethanol and for the corn industry real large were about small refinery waivers and exemptions to the RFS. Coming into the Biden administration, as both of you have outlined, the Biden administration's focus on electric, especially electric vehicles seems... Paramount. Give me an idea of how you all approached reporting on the Biden administration. It's still early, relatively early in the Biden administration. They're still getting people appointed at EPA, getting people appointed at USDA, figuring out maybe a little bit what that policy looks like for them. Yeah. How, what are you seeing coming out of the Biden administration on the ethanol front?
1: Sarah, I think the one thing that we've learned over the years is that regardless of who's in the White House, There always seems to be some uncertainty coming from EPA and how it's going to handle RFS issues. And I think that's probably escalated, I would say, in the past uh, few years. And early on in the Biden administration, it's really not been much of an improvement. We're at a point now where we had a group of senators the week that we're talking here on this podcast asking for a meeting with the White House and with the president's cabinet to talk about where ethanol fits into their to their pick, the big scheme of things, and uh, there's been a lot of concern that at this point the Biden administration really isn't giving ethanol the credit that uh, the industry wants and probably deserves. When you look at improvements that have been made in the industry in terms of uh, cutting back carbon emissions, uh, reducing the footprint of ethanol, there's a lot of things that the industry's done. When compared to fossil fuels, ethanol really is a far greener fuel. It's it's better all around. And I think what well, we've seen early on with the Biden administration, there's really a lot of alarm bells going off in the industry and in the agriculture as to what we're going to see. A couple of court rulings that went against the industry. We, we had a district appeal, excuse me, an appeals court in D.C. that ruled against the E15 rule. EPA under Trump had allowed uh, year-round E15 sales before it was restricted for ozone concerns. And then we had a Supreme Court case that went against the industry on the smaller refinery exemptions cases. There's just a lot there. We're still talking about, at this, the time that we're talking on the show, we don't have RFS volumes for 2021 or 2022. It's, that's a lot of uncertainty for the industry at this point in time. And I think until we see more from the Biden administration policy-wise we really don't know where things are going, and I think that uncertainty is really, at some point, going to start playing into the markets quite a bit heavier as we go forward.
2: Yeah, what exactly, Todd. And what you talked about with being a green, more of a green fuel than gasoline, that's certainly true. In our story, we highlighted a recent study by Harvard and Tufts Universities that found corn-based ethanol's carbon intensity is 46% less than gasoline and uh, some ethanol today, in today's market is 61% less according to the study. So efficiency improvements and the adoption of new technology certainly contributed to a steady reduction of the life -life cycle carbon intensity of corn ethanol. so as, uh, as the ethanol industry, that's something the ethanol industry is certainly trying to preach and, and convey to policy ma- lawmakers, policymakers, and so forth. If, if the administration's true goal is net zero emissions, it shouldn't really matter. And this is something the ethanol industry is preaching to. It really shouldn't matter how it's done. And ethanol certainly can play a big role in that. They are working, continually working toward that goal. One thing we highlighted in the story here is the carbon Capture projects from ethanol plants from the production of ethanol that that is part of this equation as well. So essentially, there's different. There's at least three different projects that are in the works to capture the CO two that's emitted from ethanol plants during the production process to make the fuel more green to basically reduce uh, the carbon footprint of refineries and the fuel in, itself. So instead of being the CO2 being released in the air, it would be captured and transported via underground piping, uh, and transported to uh, uh, to areas to be stored underground, such as in in the dec- south in the Dakotas, where they have underground saline geological formations that would that work perfectly to store uh, CO2 safely store CO2 underground. So these projects are in the works, and uh, that will certainly help. H- help the uh, enlarge the green make make ethanol really more 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 of an, even more of a green fuel than it ar- already is so that's part of the reason why the industry is has faith in the future of the ethanol because this whole story is based on is ethanol still the fuel can be the fuel of the future or is the fuel of, fu- of the future and uh, while there's certainly a lot of questions uh, that we've already talked about in uncertainty within the industry, many of the leaders within the, the industry and farmers believe it will. It just, it's a green fuel. It'll get, continue to get, continue to get better as technology progresses. And, and really it is a very important part of, for agriculture and corn and being able to be a market for corn producers and, uh, and also to be a, with all the infrastructure and everything that's already built, and it's a great employer within these small rural communities where these plants are located, it's just, it's a very important part of the U.S. economy and the rural economy to be abandoned, and that's why a lot of these farmers and industry officials believe, yes, it will be a fuel of the future still.
0: I want to circle back to some of the kind of environmental questions, because despite the, the many benefits that you laid out there of as compared to petroleum-based fuels, there is a question, I think, and the, the biggest one that I think I hear today is about land use change. And it's an interesting time to talk about that because of how tight supplies are in the U.S. and how high the price of corn is. So I'm curious, in your both of your reporting, what are you hearing from both folks in and around the industry and their concerns or lack of concerns about how ethanol has driven land use changes and and corn production over the last 15 years or so that the RFS has been around. And then what are you hearing from farmers on that front? Are they, especially now that there's demand is where it is, has that shifted anyone's perspective on how much they're thinking about ethanol as a market?
1: Well, yeah, Sarah, it's interesting. We've heard a lot about land use change in the past 15 years. There's been so much that's been done on this front. And I think one of the things that's really come to light in the past four or five years is that the landscape of agriculture, in terms of the actual land that's used, really hasn't changed any. You look back on the days before the RFS, and then you compare to where we are now in terms of acres used to corn and Just in general, the number of acres in agriculture—it's the needle's really not moved. I think a lot of environmental groups and others have really tried to make that case, but a lot of times the data that's used to try to make that case really isn't that accurate. I could I could go on and on about the number of studies that have been done on this front and how those studies were flawed in in a lot of different ways, whether it be the, the satellite technology used, what they're actually seeing on the ground through the satellite technology in terms of looking at how agriculture acres are used. Clearly there there have been some areas of the world where we've seen land cleared for to grow crops and you could make the case that perhaps that was done to to account for, you know, the biofuels demand of, of feedstocks like corn. But really I think I think that while that's an interesting issue, I think that by and large it's really hard to say that corn ethanol has driven a massive land use change, whether it be in the United States or anywhere else. I think this is probably a subject that's going to continually come up on the environmental side when we're talking about corn ethanol, but it's really, the numbers just don't bear out that's actually occurred to any great degree.
2: No, I agree, Todd. I think if you think about back when the industry was was born and and when it really started taking off with the RFS in the mid 2000, why why was it created in the first place? The true, why was it truly created? It was because in my opinion, it was like we had huge surpluses of corn already. So it was already there. People, farmers were already Already growing massive amounts of corn, it was just getting in with new, t- with the, with better genetics and production techniques. It was just going to continue to grow and the acres. Like Todd said, the acres were already were already there, and ethanol was one way to help utilize some of that excess production of corn into a, and make a greener fuel with it. And it's not, we've all heard that f- uh, fuel versus f- food debate, and that has been out for years where uh, those that are, are, do not like ethanol, and bio or biofuel production—that's one of the mantras that they'll talk about. But really, but with when they, during the ethanol during ethanol production, we all know dried DDGs are made. It's a co-product of ethanol. Ethanol's made, and then in the starch, and then and then you have DDGs, which are then fed to livestock. So it's still a lot. Most of the corn anyway was livestock feed. Previously, yeah, a lot of went into food, into food production and processing, but the bulk was still livestock used in livestock feed. So it's still being used for livestock feed in the cattle and hog industry and, and so forth. So uh, all we're doing and all the ethanol was doing, yeah, was helping relieve some of that surplus of corn to make a better market and improve prices uh, for for farmers as well.
1: Yeah, and Sarah, I think another point Matt touched on it a little bit. You asked about what our farmers say, and I think we've seen a lot of frustration in the industry for a long time. There's been uh, early on in the RFS, there was a lot of misinformation campaigns out there. There was a lot of pushback on a lot of these fronts. And I think farmers by and large know they've known the story of ethanol from day one. They've known not only not only the fact that it uh, uses up the, the corn that they produce and it, it creates great markets, but they don't produce corn for food. It's always been an interesting argument that we've we've seen a lot of back and forth on but it's like i said it's just it's i think a lot of these issues have really raised a lot of frustration in the ag community and i I think we're still seeing that it seems like we're fighting a lot of the same battles in ethanol that that were fought for years and i i think it's always a re-education situation that we see especially in dc and and other places
2: yeah with the with and farmers are still very, most, every farmer is very supportive of, of ethanol and wants and would like the industry to thrive for decades to come. And, and they, money most believe, I believe it will. Ethanol provides, like Todd said, an ex- extra markets for their corn. Cult uh, Many times it's very close to their farms where these plants are located. The more of a competitive bi- bids for corn or become more competitive between Processors, local elevators, and now then when you have that ethanol plants come in, and it has, it certainly there's no question it has raised prices within our story. We talked to one farmer said he's within a couple miles of a plant. He said there's no question that 10, 20 cents or more on average, my corn prices are better because of because of ethanol. At a local ethanol facility, processing plant, or refinery. Certainly, it has. It's only done. It's only provided good, a good, a good market, and and been good for the bottom line of of U.S. farmers.
0: Gentlemen, gentlemen, we'll be right back to you after this quick word from our sponsor. This episode of Field Post is brought to you by DTN Ag Marketplace. Marketing is a year-round business, but it's not your only job. As you focus on field work, monitor your opportunities and easily make an offer with help from the free DTN Ag Marketplace app. DTN Ag Marketplace facilitates end-to-end grain sales on your schedule. From your mobile device, you can easily connect to local agribusiness to view current cash bids and futures to sell your grain. Need more accountability in your marketing program? The app lets you set goals and monitor progress and enter and track inventory. Start to confidently market your crops with DTN Ag Marketplace. Download it today for free in the Apple Store. Now, back to the show. And we're back again. Joining us today are DTN staff reporter Todd Neely and progressive farmer crops editor Matt Wildy. Todd, certainly fighting the maybe misinformation or the backlash from other industries has been an ongoing challenge for farmers, but fighting, especially in Washington, D.C., has, as we've touched on a little bit, also revolved around those small refinery waivers. Todd, you did mention that there was a recent court ruling that had some bearing on this. Could you just give us an update on where the kind of small refinery situation stands at the moment and where you expect it maybe to go in the near future?
1: Yeah, certainly. The Supreme Court uh, ruled in favor of a couple different refining companies. Some of the case was a bit detailed, it was a bit into the weeds, but Basically, the court agreed with uh, the 10th Circuit. Uh, with a, the 10th Circuit had issued a ruling back in January of 2020, or was it January? It's hard to remember. I think it was January, of maybe this year, where there was a lot. There was a lot of discussion about when a refinery could get an exemption. You know, who qualified? There's so many questions that went into this program. Where it stands now, the Supreme Court basically ruled in favor of the refiners and said that EPA could not, could not limit what it did on this exemptions program necessarily. And where we stand now, we still have more than 60 waiver requests that are pending with the EPA that date back to, I believe, 2011. Uh, there's a lot of potential exemptions coming down the pike. EPA to this point has not really said where it's going to go, although the Biden administration did defend uh, the interest of ethanol before the Supreme Court in the case. And so there is some indication that this, this administration is probably not going to go the same way that the Trump administration went. Under Trump, we had about 88 exemptions that were handed out. And it it basically led to an erosion of some 4 billion gallons of ethanol and other biofuels from the RFS. And it's still something today that I think the industry is hurting from, you know, we've seen a rebound in ethanol. It's been a comeback since the COVID shut down. But the loss of that demand, that 4 billion gallons of demand is something that's really hard to get back. That's a lot of money lost. And so we're waiting to see what EPA decides to do. But I, I think there is some encouraging signs that at least on the smaller binary exemption waivers that EPA is, is seeing ethanol side of things.
0: I think that, that it, it seems like something that is that farmers have been keeping a very close eye on. And especially, I think... As we move closer to 2022, 2023, where as Matt you mentioned a little bit earlier, there's this this looming reset for the RFS coming. I'm curious how, what you all are hearing from folks in DC or from other kind of advocates in the industry about how those conversations, I I imagine, are well underway already. Uh, that tends to happen with big policy questions far in advance of when you know deadlines actually occur. What what you know, is expected to happen when, you know, these, the volume levels expire and and need to be reset in, at the beginning of 2023?
1: Yeah, Sarah, the thing is, EPA is going to have the discretion basically to set the volumes. And so there's, I think there's a lot of behind the scenes work going on between ethanol advocates and others uh, involved in ag and the RFS. I think they're trying to get that message across that just because this is a reset that's coming up, it doesn't mean That the RFS basically dies. Uh, It does not. The RFS goes on. I think that there's plenty of concern to be had, though, because perhaps the future volumes in the RFS are going to depend, as they always do, on the political state of things, whether it be in the EPA or the White House and, and where the administration stands on biofuels. I think we've seen a lot of discussion, and this is something we talk about in the story for the magazine, about states implementing low carbon fuel standards. And I think. We've seen that in California many years ago, that they set an LCFS that's actually beginning to start to work for ethanol out there. They're seeing a real demand. In fact, ethanol's kind of leading the way in terms of filling, filling all the demands of the California rule. And so I think that's probably, if you look at policy, I think that's probably the future of where things are going to go. I think we're going to see a lot of states implementing low carbon fuel standards along the way but i also think that's only going to work if, if, if there's a national discussion about these kinds of uh, regulations and i think rfs is probably it's probably always going to be there to some degree and whether it's going to actually be the driver of this industry is probably a wide open question i think that we just have to wait and see we're at we're in a different administration here again and we're kind of wondering where that reset's going to go i think we expect the reset to come hopefully by the end of this year, at least the proposal, by the end of this year and early next year sometimes.
2: Yeah, like Todd said, the LCFS in in California certainly has been a driver of, a, of biofuel use there, and as ethanol, as the industry has now finally proven its green qualities there, they are using it more and, and more. And often California, people like it or not, is the leader within, especially on the West Coast and other states often follow suit with what Californ- policy in California, what California sets as, uh, as policy, I should say. And so you'd see Oregon, Washington, New Mexico is looking in, into that. So it's uh, certainly can grow from there. And now, in the, certainly in the Midwest, they've, within our story, we talked about uh, other states, uh, like Todd said, looking into LCFS requirements as well that could uh, bolster. The the industry you will see some requirements like for uh, biodiesel in certain states like in Minnesota had to have blending requirements and so forth that, that certainly could be be part of the equation too not for ethanol you might see blending, more blending requirements in different states as well. What I've, with the farmers and ethanol producers that I talked to for, uh, for this story, they believe, yeah, it certainly could be benefits in the future for the future of of the industry. And they're uh, often willing to, and now they certainly do, some of the industry believe in the future of ethanol and they're investing heavily. They're still investing heavily in ethanol. And their facilities, and to to make them more efficient, or even to grow, which shows great. We talked about right away in the story shows they it shows great faith that they that the industry leaders have in in, in the fuel.
0: Yeah, I think that the trade-off between federal policy versus state-level policy seems to be a major focus going forward as more states consider and, and adopt those kind of renewable fuel standards. But I'm curious, I think the big win that we've seen in the last few years, or what was expected to be a big win of the last few years on the federal side, was that E15 um what happened with E15 in the last two years or so, I wonder if we can get an update on pushing past that E10 blend wall and whether or not that is expected to be something that takes hold or whether there's going to need to be additional action to get up to regular widely distributed E15. Yeah,
1: Sarah, I think we're at a real interesting turning point here. And when it comes to E15... The appeals court in DC, they basically said that the EPA had no authority uh, to allow the year round sale of E15. And, and so what this does, so there are some states and some areas of the country that have ozone concerns. And as the laws are written right now, E15 would not be allowed in those areas from, what is it, June 1st, to I think September 15th of every year. And that's a big chunk of time. That's the summer driving season. That's when ethanol demand is usually the highest gasoline demand, obviously too. And we're at a point now where I think a lot of people in the industry are really scrambling to figure out what are we going to do with E-15. I think that EPA could probably take it upon themselves to whether it be to issue some guidance on this or whether it be to rewrite a rule. There's a lot of things that could actually be done. But E15 really is that next level fuel for the industry. There's a lot of talk about higher blends of ethanol. We know we have E85 across the country that's sold in a lot of places. It's, it's not widely available, but it's out there. But E15 was really thought of as the fuel that if not anything else, it, it would possibly replace the E10 market at some point. And so we've seen Unfortunately, even before this court ruling, we've been seeing a lot of investment in E15. A lot of gasoline retailers have put up pumps. We've seen a lot of interest in in expanding that particular availability of that fuel. And when the court ruling came around, I think it put a lot of those investments into question. And I think that's really the concern. We're on an island right now, so to speak, on E15. We're not really sure where things are going to go, but we definitely before the next summer driving season, which is basically June to September. There's going to have to be something done, otherwise we'll be seeing a restriction on E15 like we did before the Trump administration passed its rule.
2: Yes, as far as yeah, E15, I think it's for, from another little from another perspective. I think it's very has been pretty dang popular in the in at least what I've seen in the Midwest as more stations are being as new stations are being built. I've noticed uh, that's almost they have a variety of gas selection with fuel selections within on the new pumps. E15 is is always part of that. Uh, E85 is part of that. E10 is part of that. Many more and more stations are having blender pumps as some a lot of states offer offer incentives and financial incentives to, to expand fuel options uh, within their states. So, and when I, when, from a personal point, when I'm filling up, I choose E15 a lot because I, if I can save 10 cents a gallon, which it usually is over E10, I do it. And I haven't noticed any drop in fuel mileage because of it. And I see a lot of other people choosing that as well. Um, I always look around and see what people are f- feeling when they're filling up and see what they're choosing, that uh, pump is being used an awful lot. So hopefully, hopefully the EPA and the, admin, uh, and the administration and this Congress will uh, will be able to figure out what they need to do to keep that uh, year-round fuel. Because uh, quite honestly, I think the, the consumers, consumers want it. They like the choice. So especially what I've seen in the Midwest.
0: I'm curious, too, about the other side of this demand question, which I think, especially at the beginning of COVID, when driving went down precipitously and we saw those very bizarre few days where oil was trading at negative $40 a barrel, there was a lot of concern about what that would mean for ethanol and ethanol plants. But I think in the meantime, we've seen a remarkable resilience with ethanol and even some some growth in kind of export markets. So I wonder when you all were research, doing the research for this article and considering global demand for ethanol and other markets beyond just domestic consumption, is that a growing market? Is there potential for significant in a world where E15 remains smart in controversy and we are remain at E10 here in the United States? Is there significant potential to grow ethanol exports?
1: Yeah, Sarah, it's interesting, before we had the China trade wars under the Trump administration, China was the next frontier in terms of ethanol exports. And I think it still is. I I think there's a lot of work to be done on the trade front to open up that market because that it is a massive potential market in China. And I think if you ask anybody in the industry where they would like to see more of their product go, go it would be China. Having said that, the Chinese seem to be up and down when it comes to what they how they view ethanol. At one point they had a requirement that they were going to require, I believe it was either 10 or 20% ethanol in their fuel and they quick. It was a 10. Yeah. And so they quickly went away from that when the whole COVID situation picked up. So yeah, I, I think when you look at the export markets, ethanol has gotten through some of its toughest times by looking outside of our borders. And I don't think that's any different. I think as we go on, whether we have U15, whether we have the RFS, there's always going to be a demand for ethanol. And I think it's, I think that place is China, although there's movement in Mexico, there's other places I know the industry would like to go, such as India. There's a lot of, there's a lot of potential out there for the fuel. And I think if the right work is done on the trade front, if the relationships are built in some of these countries, and they see the benefits, especially the carbon benefits, that ethanol has a very large export future ahead of it. I
2: I, I couldn't agree with with you more, Todd, about dealing with with China as probably most likely the next big, the big export market in the future. I've been to China uh, before, and in there's big cities, the smog is just horrendous and it just sits so you think of back for those of us old enough you remember seeing pictures of the of Los Angeles and some of the bigger cities on the west coast and the haze and the fog, oh, smog just just enveloping the cities and in the 70s and in early 80s and then with our with without the help of ethanol and other environmental rules that that has greatly improved now, but China still marred in that same time period. People, now we wear masks for COVID, and they certainly do that there, but the main reason they were always, you'd see people in China, their citizens wearing masks, especially in the large cities, was because of smog issues, and, and to protect themselves from that, and to be able to breathe uh, breathe easier. So that was a big emphasis around ethanol, because they saw what happened, uh, how it has helped uh, in the United States, and they were going imp- to try to implement that in China and they that's still the still talk for sure. The question is whether they're going to import or build the plants themselves and import the corn and to uh, manufacture. And a lot of times, China they like to bring in the bulk material and then do the processing themselves for to control the end products and to create jobs and wealth and so forth. That's one thing we always thought maybe corn exports would blossom because of china's demand for corn for ethanol and certainly china has increased their corn exports here in the last last year to which has boost to help boost the prices low in the united states but it wasn't really it wasn't for ethanol it was for other reason to help feed their uh, feed, feed their hog, growing hog herd again but but that is certainly still a still in play for the future for sure which again i think that is part of where the 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 future of the industry is still bright and and what farmers and producers see as a bright, yeah, certainly see as a bright future.
0: I just have one kind of last question, which is, as we come, we've covered so many, you know, variables, so many risks, so many potential outcomes of the next from few months to a few years and what that can mean for ethanol. But I'm curious what you all are paying closest attention to in the near future in terms of are there reports, outcomes of meetings or events that you think will have a particularly, I don't know, will be particularly informative to the next, the near future for ethanol? And how are you all going to continue following the story moving forward?
1: In terms of where we're going with federal policy, I think that is just a, the huge 800-pound gorilla in the room here. I, We don't really know, what, for example, what an RFS reset's actually going to look like. We don't yet know what the volume's for the RFS in 21 and 22 are, are going to be, there's been some talk that those are going to be either the same or a little bit lower. Uh, and in the meantime, and we're seeing a huge investment, at least a potential investment coming from the Biden administration in electric vehicles. When we talk infrastructure, uh, one of the big award winners in that right now would be electric vehicles. Whereas the, the future of biofuels and federal funding is quite a bit, quite a bit more bleak. I think that's really where the rubber is going to meet the road on the future of the industry. What we're going to see in the next couple of years in terms of the RFS, in in terms of trade with China, there's a lot that's going to happen within the Biden administration that I think is going to really determine where we go.
2: Yeah, as far as uh, from a business uh, standpoint as well, we'll really, in the very near term we'll keep a very close eye on on, on the corn this year's corn crop. There's been a lot of areas where it's very, been very variable across the country, like it is mostly every year. There's some areas that have have had ample great timely rains. And I talked to one farmer in Southeast, Southwest Iowa just the other week is this is like hitting the lottery this year. This is the one year, God forbid, there's a knock on wood, there's a a hail or big wind event or something. But with the corn prices, the way they are and, and what's sitting in the field, this could be uh, a big year, which he needs after several years of low prices and low production because of drought issues but then the, and there's areas that in the Dakota's red river valley of minnesota parts of uh, south southern uh, southern minnesota too. drought uh, has certainly taken a toll. On on crops too. I know early on in the season, portions of Ohio was too wet. So again, yeah, we'll look at this corn crop, how big it, how big or small it might be, and and where that where prices may go from there, because that will certainly have a impact on 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 The feedstock, the main feedstock for ethanol, and their and the price structure as well. But as uh, as the industry said too, is we can even with five dollar corn, we can make a profit selling ethanol as long as that ethanol price is, is good. And right now, they are the profitability is there for ethanol for the most part. Yeah, corn for farmers and industry leaders are still very positive. About the future of the fuel of and and where it will go again, investment is being is being made in the industry. Sure, there's several plants. We were told by Chad Hart of Iowa State, who follows the ethanol industry very closely, that during the pandemic, several, maybe 10 to 20 plants did did temporarily cease production or or cease production permanently because of because of the pandemic and in basically demand falling off. But these are typically older plants. They needed to be upgraded anyway. The owners decided not to put that money in and, and so forth. There's a lot of different reasons behind it. But overall, there's still good investment in going in, such as with the story we lead off to this our story for the August edition of the Progressive Farmer dealing with at Golden Grain Energy in Mason City, Iowa. They built the world's, what's billed as the world's largest grain bin. They call it Benzilla. 2.2 million bushels of corn this thing can hold. And, and so they spent in the last couple of years, that, that plant spent about $10 million in the bin, a new high output unloading or high volume corn dump to fill it, a new entrance for the plant to make the logistics for bringing corn, getting corn in quickly our trucks in quickly and, and the leave quickly just the traffic movement better for the plant. So yeah, they are spending money. Poet, the largest ethanol producer in the country, they just bought, they recently bought Flint Hills ethanol plant, six ethanol plants in Flint Hills and a couple terminals. For an undisclosed amount of money, you can imagine what that would cost to buy six ethanol plants, millions and tens of millions, hundreds of millions, whatever the case may be. That, when I talked to the uh, leaders of those two plants, they said, yeah, we wouldn't have done that if we thought the future, that ethanol's days were nearing the end. We have great faith in the industry. We're investing in it.
1: Yeah, Sarah, and I would just add, I think that it's <clears throat> interesting. We we focused a lot on the industry in the in this particular story. You know, we cover it on a daily, I cover it on a daily basis, seemingly, but really the story of ethanol really hasn't changed since the RFS. It's really been, it's really been an industry that seems to roll with the punches, it's taken a lot of blows. We've seen that again, this, this past couple of years, and there always seems to be a ray of hope in this industry. And I think it, it says a lot for the rural communities. A lot of the rural communities have benefited greatly from the production of ethanol and corn. And I think that they look at this as something that's a long-term venture. It's just not something that comes and goes. And I think maybe it's just part of the optimism in rural America, generally speaking.
0: To read more of this deep-diving ethanol story, or to follow the rest of Todd and Matt's up-to-the-minute reporting, visit DTNPF.com or subscribe to the monthly DTN Progressive Farmer magazine. This episode of Field Post was brought to you by the team at DTN Progressive Farmer with special thanks to Todd Neely and Matt Wildy. This episode was produced and edited by me, Sarah Mock, with support by Greg Hillier and Kylie Swanson. And a big thanks to all of you for listening. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And until then, remember, the future of farming is here. This episode of Field Post is brought to you by DTN Ag Marketplace. Marketing is a year-round business, but it's not your only job. As you focus on field work, monitor your opportunities, and easily make an offer with help from the free DTN Ag Marketplace app. DTN Ag Marketplace facilitates end-to-end grain sales on your schedule. From your mobile device, you can easily connect to local agribusiness to view current cash bids and futures to sell your grain. Need more accountability in your marketing program? The app lets you set goals and monitor progress and enter and track inventory. Start to confidently market your crops with DTN Ag Marketplace. Download it today for free in the Apple Store. Now, back to the show.